Well, you can join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find them under a chair nearby. And Mark 11 is on page 848 of those Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take that one with you um, and for you to uh, read it yourself uh, as a gift from us. So Mark chapter 11, we're going to be at the, uh, toward the end of the chapter and into chapter 12. Before we read this, I'll just ask you a question. What comes to your mind when you think about the ministry of Jesus? What kinds of things start coming to mind? We often think of His healings or His teaching, or maybe a particular moment came to your mind of when He healed someone or when He was teaching or when He was talking to His disciples. And what struck me recently in spending time in the Gospel of Mark is just how much space is given to stories of resistance against Jesus. That's not often what first comes to my mind when I think of Jesus, is stories where people are resisting Him, but it's common here. The leaders start confronting Jesus at the beginning of His ministry. From the very beginning, in Mark chapter 2 into chapter 3, there's a series of confrontations that happen with Jesus, and by chapter 3, verse 6 in the Gospel of Mark, the leaders already decide they want to kill Him. And then later they start saying that uh, His healings are really, and demon castings, those are exorcisms, are the result of him being possessed by Satan, and they know it's not even true, they're being irrational here. And then in chapters 11 to 13, which we're in right now, it's another series of confrontations and resistance to Jesus. So in our text this morning, Jesus focuses on how and why the leaders of Israel are resisting and rejecting him. And so what this text will do for us is it'll show us one clear example of the way many people come to reject Jesus. So this helps us to understand what is often going on when people do resist and reject Jesus. So in our text, Jesus has come to announce the rejection of Israel's leaders against him, and he is cryptically also announcing that he will be taking over from here and they won't be leading anymore. Of course, they can always respond to this kind of threat by killing him, which is what they do, but we find out that actually them killing Jesus is part of Jesus' plan to actually then be raised and take his seat as the true leader of all creation. And so they can continue in their unjust oppression, oppressive leadership for only so long because God sees, God hears, God knows, And Jesus has come to address it. So let's read Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27 through the first section of 12. And they, that is Jesus and the disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables, chapter 12. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower 
and he leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So here's the question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word here, and we pray that we pray expectantly that you would give us understanding in our minds, that you would change the desires of our heart in whatever ways they need to be changed, so that we would live lives that glorify you more truly and we'd shine more brightly. So we pray and we invite your work by the Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this section is here to show us how and why Israel's leaders resisted Jesus and how it proves futile in the end. So this gives us a window into how and why some people resist Jesus. Not everyone resists Jesus in this particular way, but this does give us a unique window into the way that some people do resist Jesus. And there may be commonalities with many of us in different ways. So it shows us how we may resist Jesus and how that's not, in the end, a good idea. So let's walk through this and we'll see four lessons from this example of resistance to Jesus. We'll see that their resistance of Jesus was intellectually dishonest, historically persistent, selfishly motivated, and ultimately futile. So first, in the case of these leaders, their resistance was intellectually dishonest. So this is the final week of Jesus's ministry. He's leading to the the cross and resurrection. He's just entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He's made a number of provocative symbolic actions that if you were here the past few weeks, we've considered. So he rides into this capital city in a way that sends signals that he is coming as the true king of that city and the nation of Israel and the nations. He then goes into the temple and he flips over tables, condemning what's happening in there and announcing judgment to come. And then he curses a fig tree in a symbolic action to reinforce the message of flipping tables in the temple that Israel and their leaders were supposed to bear fruit like a fig tree, but they didn't, and so it's going to be, they're going to be withered. They're going to be like the fig tree that's withered to its roots. So Jesus has been provocative, and now he enters into Jerusalem and the temple again, and so the leaders of Israel now confront him. So this is like, you know, someone walking into the White House, flipping over tables, saying the place is going to be judged, and then coming back the next day, and all these officials start coming to him, right? 
and they confront him. But it's interesting, they don't engage him with the substance of his criticisms. Instead, they ask him an intellectual question. In verse 28, they say, By what authority do you do these things, or who gave you the authority to do them? So their issue is with Jesus' authority, clearly, right? Does he have authority to do and say the things that he's been doing? And this is actually a great question on the surface, isn't it? This is really the question we want to be able to answer. Does Jesus have authority to say and do the things that he did? I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's uh, trilemma. Is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord? It's a question of authority. If he's a liar or a lunatic, right, if he's just making up this stuff as he walks around, or he's actually deluded, well, then he doesn't actually have any authority, does he? And we don't need to listen to him. Close your Bible, put it away, move on with life. But if he does have authority, if he's not a liar or a lunatic, then he has authority to do these things, and that means he is the Lord. He must actually have authority for the claims he's making. So they're asking the right intellectual question, and the answer to that question should matter and does matter for anyone exploring the claims of Jesus. Right? If you're exploring who Jesus is and what it would mean to begin following him, you want to have that answer. Does Jesus have authority to do the things that he did and say what he said? But here's the problem. Jesus doesn't need to answer that question at this point because his actions have already been answering this question all along, and they've seen it. They've been there for it. He's cast out demons. They've seen him heal. They've heard him teach. They've seen his power. And they've also heard Jesus challenge them. They've heard him challenge their own authority, calling into question their traditions that they've put over the authority of God's Word. And so they ask a good intellectual question here, but it's not an honest question because they don't want to understand Jesus here. They already get him. They want to trap him in his words. They want to arrest him, and they want to kill him. And so how does Jesus respond to their question? Well, uh, Francis Schaeffer used to say that Christians should give honest answers to honest questions. I love that. If someone has an honest question, Christians should give honest answers. And if you don't know the answer, you honestly say, I don't know. How about I help you figure this out? How, how about I help us answer this question? Jesus modeled this. Honest answers to honest questions. But this is not an honest question. And so Jesus calls it out in a creative way. He says he'll answer their question if they answer his. He's discerning whether or not it's honest, really exposing that it's dishonest. So here's this question. You can see it in verse 29 and 30. I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So the question of John's baptism isn't irrelevant because it was at John's baptism that Jesus himself was declared to be the Son of God, this coming king. And John's baptism then affirmed Jesus' identity. So if they say that John's baptism is from heaven, that is from God, that it was authorized by God, then that means that John's ministry and Jesus' ministry are legitimate and they need to make way for the king. 
if they say that John's baptism was not from heaven, but from man, he's from themselves, well then the leaders are afraid because they want to say that, but they'll lose their credibility because people have seen the things that were happening and they believe that John was legitimate. So they just answer, we don't know. So Jesus says, well then I'm not going to answer your question. So here's what we learned from their resistance to Jesus to this point. Sometimes a person has intellectual reasons for resisting Jesus, rejecting Jesus, being slow to come along and follow Jesus, but sometimes the intellectual reason isn't actually their true reason for resisting Him. It's not an honest pursuit of truth. Now, there's many different people have many different reasons for resisting, trusting, and following Jesus. There's often not just one reason someone has for rejecting Jesus and His claims. In his book, The Reason for God, by Tim Keller, which I commend to you, Tim Keller notes three common barriers to following Jesus. So one of them is intellectual. So people have tough questions about Christianity, right? Like, um, what about other religions? Or if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world that He would allow? So questions like these leaders even ask here, where does Jesus get His authority? So those are good intellectual questions, and Christians should help people find answers to those questions. But some people have other barriers. So a second barrier, uh, Keller notes, is personal. So people need firsthand experience of God. A third barrier is social. They need to see a group of Christians living out what it means to be a Christian by the power of the Holy Spirit, to see that it's compelling. But what this example shows us from these leaders is that sometimes there's also a, we could say, a moral barrier. They don't want to trust Jesus because it threatens them in some way. And so they latch on to this intellectual question that they put to Jesus, and they may even convince themselves that the intellectual questions are their barrier. You know, I have these intellectual concerns about Jesus. But really, even if their questions are answered, they're still not going to follow Jesus because they've already decided they're not going to follow him no matter what the answers are. They've already made their minds up about him. So that's the example here. Their resistance to Jesus is intellectually dishonest. So what about you? Maybe you're still exploring Christianity and this is a moment to clarify for yourself. What is your barrier? What is it that's keeping you still from following Jesus? Is there a a question that you have or a set of questions that you want to have answered? Um, Be honest with yourself. Maybe even pray to God something like this. Jesus, if you're there, and I'm not quite convinced yet that you are, would you help me to understand what my barriers are? What is keeping me from following you? In other words, praying that God would help you, if he's there, to be intellectually honest with yourself and with him. So second, their resistance to Jesus is historically persistent. Their rejection of Jesus in history here in the first century was not just a one-off bad moment in history. It was part of a long-standing pattern of resisting God. So Jesus now says 
So he, he answers, or he has a dialogue with them where he doesn't answer their question. And then he doesn't walk away. He doesn't wait for them to ask anything else. He says, one more thing. I have a story for you. And then he tells this parable, this story in chapter 12. So here's the setting in 12.1. You can read it. A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and he leased it to tenants. And then he, the owner, went to another country. So the owner has leased his vineyard that he's cared for to tenants, and these tenants are caretakers. They'll care for the vineyard while the owner's away. Now, everyone there listening knew that this was a story about Israel. Israel was called um, a vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, and we've seen in, in Mark, Isaiah is almost always on Jesus' mind. He's quoting to it, alluding to it, and it's a common story for Israel. Uh, Israel is the vineyard, and God is the owner of that vineyard, and the tenants are the leaders. So the leaders are to care for Israel so that they produce fruit for God. And what happened? Well, in verses 2 to 5, the owner sends servants to those tenants to get fruit from the vineyard. And the tenants beat the servants. They kill some of the servants. Over and over and over and over again, the tenants keep pushing away the owner's message and messengers and beating and killing these servants. So who are the servants? Well, they're the prophets that God sent to Israel over time to warn them, to confront them. They're prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Zechariah. And Jesus is saying, you have a long history of rejecting God's messengers. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew includes a bit more of this message from Jesus. Jesus said that the current generation is doing exactly what has happened for centuries. And the way Jesus puts it is interesting. He says that this current generation that he's looking in the eyes of, he said that they're filling up the full measure of this sinful rejection of their fathers. So it's like the rejection of God is a, a bucket or a barrel. And every generation that Israel and their leaders reject another prophet, it's another inch filled up. And Jesus is saying it's at the brim and it's about to overflow. And he lamented over Jerusalem. In Matthew 23, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So this is no minor note in Israel's history. Jesus is saying that this has been one of the main problems in the whole story of Israel up to this point. But the story Jesus tells isn't over. He tells it up to the current moment and then he tells them what's happening in front of them. Verse 6, he, the owner, still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they'll respect my son. Now, of course, God is not wringing his hands wondering if they're actually going to accept Jesus. It's a parable. Not every detail is meant to be pressed. The point is, they're about to kill the son just like they've killed all those servants, the prophets, before. Jesus is writing himself into the story and narrating the present moment. So here's what he says they're about to do to him in verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. 
So Jesus is saying that their rejection of him is part of this long history, and it hasn't stopped, and it won't even stop with that generation. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells the leaders that his rejection, their rejection of him will keep going. He said that he sent prophets to them before, and he'll send more messengers in the future. He said they've rejected the messengers in the past, and they'll keep rejecting them in the future. So that means throughout history, God's still going to be sending people, and they will still be rejected. I get the sense that we in America right now need to remember this broader historical perspective. Because if we don't see this, we'll think that resistance to Jesus, to the Christian message, is something that's new. We are living through, and it doesn't take much to see this, a massive shift in our culture right now, right? One author put it this way. He said that there are three eras in recent American history with respect to this. There was the positive world where Christianity and Christians were viewed positively. Then there was the neutral world where it was viewed as one option among many. And now we've shifted and entered into the negative world where Christians and Christianity are viewed as bad, um, viewed as harmful even. So in other words, Christians used to be the good guys in the culture then they became one of the guys, and now they're the bad guys. And this rapid shift can make us feel like this is all new. But we have to remember that though it's new for us in some sense, um, it's not new in history. It's been the norm throughout history. Jesus said there's historic persistence in the resistance of people to him. So here's the third lesson. Their resistance to Jesus is selfishly motivated. So Jesus gives a window into the psychology of why these leaders are resisting him, and he says that they're actually resisting him because of a selfish grasping on to and a clinging to control. Look again at verse 7. Those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And, and here's the phrase that matters here, and the inheritance will be ours. So in Jesus' story, the tenants kill the son because they want the vineyard for themselves. They know that he has authority, but they don't want to give up their power. They don't want to give up their influence. They don't want to give up their control over the vineyard. So they kill the son. They kill the heir so that the inheritance can be theirs. Jesus' point is that the leaders are rejecting him because they want to keep their own selfish control and power without submitting to God, recognizing that God's ultimately in charge. And this has repeated itself through history. It wasn't just a one-off moment. This is what happens whenever anyone subordinates God's Word to their own preferences. It happens whenever we love our ideas about how life should work more than we love God's ideas spoken through Scripture and the Word of Christ about how we should live our lives. It happened on a large scale at the time of the Reformation in the 1500s. God raised up leaders who were uh, committed uh, to submitting to God's Word and, and examining everything 
to see if it lined up with God's Word or if it was in contradiction of God's Word. This led to a great rediscovery of the gospel. It exposed that many traditions were man-made rules and even used in conflict with God's Word. But many of the leaders of the established church at the time, the Roman Catholic Church, resisted this. They were in control, and they didn't want to submit to God's Word. This is also what happens whenever any spiritual leaders abuse people under their care. They're claiming to lead people to know God, all the while personally not actually submitting to God. They ultimately want to control people, and they would prefer that God wouldn't be in the way. So they push aside warnings from God's Word. They push aside warnings from perhaps even close friends, God's people. They push away the warnings of their own consciences. Just like the prophets were rejected by the leaders of Israel, just like these leaders are rejecting Jesus. In other words, they want the inheritance for themselves. They want God's gifts, but they don't want God. And this is why I mentioned a few weeks ago, and we, we saw throughout a few sections in Mark's gospel, that humility is a non-negotiable for leadership. Because humility is what leads us to have a posture of submission to God and His Word. It's pride that leads us to resist God's authority, to stiff-arm Him, to love our own ideas of how life should work rather than receiving His ideas. It's pride that leads us to view leadership not as a stewardship from God, like being tenants, but instead as a way to control people to get our way. So this is why you can't really be a good leader unless you have learned to be a good follower. Because to lead well, you have to have humility to submit to God's Word and to follow Jesus. So this is why every pastor needs to recognize that he's ultimately an interim pastor, right? I was not here before. I won't be here one day, serving in a short amount of time. Same with every leader of any church or anywhere else. It's why every husband needs to know that he's entrusted by God to care for his family as a stewardship. It's a sacred responsibility to submit to Jesus as you lead your family. Uh, uh, the man of a home is not just the leader of the home to get his way. He's entrusted by God to submit to Jesus himself and to lead his family to follow Jesus. This applies to every topic you can think of where God's Word calls us to live one way and we would like to live another way. Or what God's Word says, the way life should be ordered is when it's in conflict with what our culture would say life should be ordered. And so the issue comes down to whether or not we will humbly receive God's Word and give ourselves to Him or whether we will resist Him so that we can do whatever we want. In other words, that is so that we can have the inheritance for ourselves. This has been the psychology of resisting God from the beginning. Think all the way back to the garden in Eden. God is the king, and he gave the world to humanity to reflect his rule, to submit to him as the ultimate king, and then to rule in his place, to be caretakers and stewards of the world under his authority. But Adam and Eve rejected God's authority, rejected his commands. They wanted the inheritance for themselves. And so we've been doing the same thing ever since. But it won't work. So last 
we see that resisting Jesus is ultimately futile. Jesus isn't done with his story here. They'll kill him, and they'll do it out of selfish motivation, but their, it's amazing here, their rejection of Jesus will ultimately end up creating the opposite of what they're going for. Jesus tells the story up to the point where the tenants kill the son. And then he asks a question in verse 9. Do you see it? What will the owner of the vineyard do? That's what matters, right? The owner's there. What's he going to do? What will the owner do when his own son is killed? Jesus says that the owner, representing God here, will come to do two things. He will judge the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. That's verse 9. He'll come and destroy the tenants and he'll give the vineyard to others. And that happened within that very generation. In AD 70, the nation of Israel and the leaders were judged. The temple was destroyed. Jesus will say that by the time we get to chapter 13. He'll say that not one stone in this building is going to be left stacked on, each, on another. It's coming down. And then that, in that first generation of the church, the church was launched into the world, and a new people, both Jews and Gentiles, came under his leadership as king and those whom he calls to lead under his authority. So where is Jesus in all this? What happens to him? What's his role? Well, he quotes from Psalm 118 to tell us. Look at verses 10 to 11. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So Psalm 118 is what the people were shouting when Jesus was entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's a psalm that tells the story of a king, most likely a Davidic king, who was rejected and then vindicated. He defeats Israel's enemies, and then he comes to Jerusalem and enters the temple, and this little saying was said of him, that he's like a stone, this king is like a stone that was rejected by the builders, but now that stone has become the most important one. In other words, a building's being built, and you need the right stones. And they looked at this one, the builders of this building, and said, reject him. And turns out that this king that was rejected by the leaders of Israel, this stone that was rejected by the builders, is the most important stone of the building. And of Jesus is the most important stone of the new temple. So here's the point. They're going to reject him. It's going to be intellectually dishonest. It's going to be part of this historic persistence of rejection. It's going to be selfishly motivated, but in the end it will be futile because their rejection of him is actually part of his plan. Because part of that saying says, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So they're going to crucify him, and he'll be buried, and he will rise and reign. They rejected the stone saying it has no place in the building of God's people, but he'll rise as the cornerstone, the most important one. So what kind of response should we have from this? Well, we see how not to respond in verse 12. They are very astute and they perceive that he's speaking this against him, against them. So what do they do? They start fulfilling the story. They start plotting to kill him. They're going to throw him out of the vineyard so the inheritance can be theirs. So here's a few reflections on how to respond to this. Think four. 
First, this gives us hope in the face of harmful leadership. So these were corrupt, prideful leaders. They controlled and oppressed Israel for centuries. And for centuries, many may have wondered if God sees, if God knows, if God cares, if God's going to do anything about it. We may wonder the same. We see injustice in the world. We see corrupt leaders in our nation and others' nations. And we wonder, does God see? We see headline after headline of tragedies and injustice, and we wonder, is God going to do anything? Is He there? Is He, is he going to pay attention to this? We see Christians persecuted around the world, and we wonder, how long is this going to keep happening? But Jesus here shows us that God does see God does know, God does care, and God will deal with it, but it will be on His timetable. He may bring judgment into the middle of history at times, as He did in A.D. 70 against those of the Jewish nation who rejected Him and these leaders. He still today, though, overturns tables and shuts down institutions and organizations. He closes the doors of unfaithful churches. He exposes the sins of hypocritical leaders. And all of history is moving toward a day when every secret will come to light, when everything hidden will be exposed, and a great day of judgment will come, and all wrongs will be set right. So this gives us hope in the midst of a world of unfaithful leaders. God does know. It's not the timetable perhaps we would want, but God has His wise reasons for allowing history to roll on as it does, and he brings his judgments and is headed toward an ultimate one. Second, this is a call to humble leadership. Jesus said there at the end that the vineyard will be given to others, right? These leaders will be destroyed, and the vineyard will be given to others, other tenants, which means that the people of God will be led by different leadership, and that is the church then, Jew and Gentile across the globe, led under different leaders. So Jesus himself is the ultimate king and leader of his church. He's the senior pastor, the chief shepherd of the church. And then he appoints these apostles and around him right there to then lead the church. We see this launched in the first century. The book of Acts tells the story. And then as churches are planted, um, others are appointed to lead the church. Elders are appointed to lead. And then there's other kinds of leaders entrusted to care at various levels. So this is a reminder that leadership really matters to Jesus. And it's a sacred responsibility and we lead under the authority of God's Word, which is why one of our core values as a church is glad submission to the authority of God's Word. Not just begrudging submission, glad submission, because it comes out of a heart that trusts Him. He knows best. I mean, we have all made a wreck of our lives at different points thinking we know best, and we'll never ultimately regret submitting ourselves to God's Word and His ways. And so we're happy to bring ourselves under His authority. Third, consider the subtle ways that you may resist God's authority. Jesus said that God sent warnings through the prophets century after century, and the leaders kept rejecting them. This shows us that we can resist God's warnings. We can grow hardened toward Him, just like God sent messengers to Israel's leaders, He sends lots of messengers to wake up God's people. He gives His Word to us. He gives us friends. He gives us pastors. 
He gives us all a conscience. And if we resist Him, we can start growing numb to His calls. We can start searing our conscience. So our conscience is the part of us that's sensitive to our perception of what's right and wrong. And if we ignore it, it gets less sensitive. We all know what I'm talking about, right? So I tell my kids that the conscience is like a barking dog, right? The dog barks at you to alert you that something is wrong. And when you hear it bark, you need to respond. And if you don't respond, the bark gets softer next time. And then if you don't respond again, the bark gets softer again the next time. And eventually, at some point, you won't even hear it anymore. You go on your way, and you don't even see that you're resisting God anymore. You won't even see that what you're doing is a problem. You start living comfortably with a lack of integrity. You start living comfortably with hypocrisy. You start living comfortably with double standards. You learn to live with a public life that you present to others that's increasingly different. The gap is widening between your public life and what's actually happening in your mind and your heart and who you are. You learn to come across godly and moral outside while your mind is corrupt inside. And so the book of Hebrews calls us to respond by saying this in chapter 3, verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, right? Bring God's word to one another so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This process of having a hardened heart toward the deceitfulness of sin. So maybe you, you are Christian and you have a pattern of sin or immorality that you know is wrong. You've been ignoring God's word. You've been coming here on Sundays and the sermons have kind of just in one ear, out another, over your head, unaffected. You're unaffected by, or maybe friends. You've been ignoring a friend's encouragement or exhortation. Or maybe you're in a season when you stop calling and reaching out to those friends who you know will maybe bring the hard word to you. That's true. Or maybe you've been ignoring your conscience and you can hardly hear it anymore. God is calling you to respond. Respond to his warnings. Or maybe you're not yet a Christian and you sense that God has been trying to get your attention. Uh, He's been working in your life. You've been convinced over time that Jesus really is who he said he was. He really is God here among us as a human being. He really did live a sinless, perfect life, the one that you know you failed to live. You've come to believe that he did die on that cross, was crucified as an act of sacrifice for you, dying in your place, taking the eternal judgment you deserve, and you believe that he did rise from the dead. It's historically credible. And he's king then. And yet you found yourself unable, unwilling to fully follow him and give yourself to him. This is a call to respond, to give up your resistance or to figure out what is left. What other barriers do you have so that you can address those? So you can turn with him, turn to him with your whole heart and repent and believe. Final way to respond, let's thank God for his patience and his kindness. The whole story of Israel's rejection of God that Jesus recounts here highlights not just how we can be so resistant to God, but it highlights his patience, doesn't it? And his kindness. 
century after century, God keeps sending his word and keeps sending prophets. And the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, decided to send his Son, God the Son, so that even when the Son is rejected by the people, this would be part of God's plan to save the people, to save us. And so Jesus died on the cross not just as a result of humanity's resistance, but he died ultimately as a, as a willing sacrifice to pay the cost for our resistance if we trust him. He suffered the rejection we deserve so that we then can receive his welcome. So isn't this great news that we can just put down our resistance and come to him knowing that he's not standoffish, he, he wants us to come and he's happy for us to come, the, the price has been paid and he welcomes us with joy. Ephesians 2, 7 says that, that the reason why he saves us in the end, the ultimate reason is so that in the coming ages, God can show us just how kind he is to us and so that we can enjoy age after age after age the riches of his patience and kindness to us in Jesus. So that's why we're here this morning, to get rid of our resistance, which will not lead to good and joy in the end anyways, so that we can receive the joy that's waiting for us. So whether you're doing this for the first time this morning, or you have a history of decades of continuing putting down your resistance to accept his welcome, let's just do that again together here. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness to us and your patient pursuit of us. We thank you that even though we have a heart that is initially bent against you, you don't push us away, but you come to us. We thank you that you do the work even in our own hearts to cause us to receive your call, to be open to your invitation. And so we pray that you'd work by your spirit even right now to give us this fresh joy of following Jesus. Help us to be wholeheartedly following you and not resistant to any part of your will for us through your word. And we pray that as we walk out this morning, we would walk lifted and lighter, knowing that you have come to reverse our resistance and give us great joy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I love the